Welcome to a brand new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Tyler Childs to talk with us about CSS. Tyler, you want to give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm Tyler Childs. I am a UI engineer currently working at Netflix with Ryan and Jem and Ryan. <laughs> um, and my favorite happy hour beverage is uh, a little bit of scotch. I like drinking Lafroy for the most part. Good choice. We should have been actually drinking scotch instead of beer right now. Probably that would have been a good idea. Yeah, definitely a good, good idea. Yeah. Beer is always good, too. All right. Well, Tyler kind of introduced our panelists, but Jem, you want to give... No, that's okay. Jem, uh, <laughs> you want to give a brief introduction? Jem uh, Young, Senior Software Engineer at Netflix. I'm Ryan Inklum, a software engineer here at Netflix, coming back to the show. Yeah, it's been a while, man. <laughs> Glad to have you it back. Is. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at, you guessed it, Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we love to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Selector. 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 I'm sure selector will not come up in the episode about CSS. We'll see about that. (laughs) All right, let's jump in. I figured one thing I wanted to talk about was learning more about the latest versions of CSS and like what features are you all excited about or using today? Yeah, um, I'll jump in and start with that one. Uh, I think for me, one of the things that I'm most excited about would be uh, CSS custom properties, aka CSS variables. And uh, what I really like about those is the fact that they happen uh, at runtime. So you can kind of change the variables on the fly. So when your specificity changes, the variables can change too. That is pretty badass, actually. I mean, CSS has needed variables for forever. That's why we had CSS preprocessors. There was a lot of additional features, that, but just the fact that you could have a variable was huge. Yeah, that was a game changer. Yeah, that really was. At first, when I first started using a CSS preprocessor, I was like, eh, it's cool. But then when you start using it, you're like, yeah, just having a variable can save your ass a lot. Yeah. And to go further for that, one of the things for CSS variables is you can kind of clean up and organize your code a lot more because you can kind of treat your rule sets as uh, functions. So you can have all of your thing, all of your different um, selectors. Cheers. 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 So you can have all of your uh, different rule sets set up to inherit those different uh, variables and then you can change them uh, depending on your different state and then those will all get applied there. So your CSS can be a lot cleaner with just vanilla CSS. Very nice. I'll tell you one that I was, I'm, well, I'm excited about variables in general, but there is actually, I want to avoid the keyword here, but I'm excited. There are quite a few additional new selectors that could be very valuable Cheers. for UIs. Cheers. Cheers. I mean, there's things like valid, invalid, matches seem pretty cool. I was trying to think of when you would do that, but it was like, if you had like headings and you wanted to say like, match this style on all headings like that's a way to do it rather than just say like h2 get this style you could use matches i'm still not quite sure when you would use that over just saying h2 gets a style i thought in range outer range were cool just like simple validation read only and write only i'm not sure when i would use that but i feel like there's probably a use case for it are, are these different uh like pseudo selectors or they are pseudo selectors <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> cheers. cheers so like I'm not wild about those. I I get why they're used, but I worry, and this is my worry about CSS, is it's overreaching. And the things that like, yeah, these are cases that need to be solved and people solve them, but like, is it something you belong to CSS or like, should you just do it with a class? 
Uh, so like having JavaScript apply a different class to for like uh, for let's talk about valid and invalid. Valid and invalid is yeah. a perfect example because we would normally do that as like just throw a class on it and control it with JavaScript. That is definitely how we would do it today. Yeah, um, I think I haven't really used uh, invalid or valid at all, but those would be like on like native form elements. I'm thinking. Yep. And I think one of the benefits of having CSS control that um, I think there's pros and cons to both. Um, but the native form elements are going to behave differently in different browsers. I remember years ago, I used to always fight uh, native styling for like uh, drop downs or um, select. It was almost impossible. It was almost impossible. And now you can get like some decent styling, but you don't want to really like override the default browser behavior because then you get like a lot of accessibility gains for free. So I think that could be like one pro of having CSS be able to do that. That was going to be my big thing there too, is like one, the overhead that you just don't have to deal with that anymore. But you're also, yeah, letting the native browser just do its thing. And I think Tyler's point of the accessibility is a huge one is like oftentimes we end up screwing accessibility features with JavaScript, overriding something that's native and default to the browser. So I think this just makes it easier, but also I feel like you'd get performance gains on it too, because you're not having to manipulate anything in JavaScript. It's just, you're getting it by just CSS. Wouldn't you have to manipulate in JavaScript anyways to know what the range is? Or I guess you're setting that HTML. Yeah, I mean, with some of the HTML5 in forums, you could get some of that for free. But I guess to that point, there's the trade-off is also you probably have some rules that are not going to be native to the browser. So you're going to have to write that in JavaScript. So you might have to do the class anyways at that point or add the pseudo selector cheers. cheers i don't know it, it's still i get you laid out a good use case tyler yeah. but i'm still like i worry it's becoming overcomplicated and there's so many people who have opinions that are now like feeding their micro opinions into the css spec like oh we have this use case and they're like yeah let's throw it in there and then you know in 10 years you have this bloated thing that oh you can do it in css yeah it's just this 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 and this rather than something clean and simple and easy to to learn and it seems like something that's reaching a bit to most people use frameworks these days. I don't know many people just build like just straight up HTML, CSS anymore, even though they should, which we've talked yeah. about in previous episodes. Does, do you think this maybe helps get that though? Is like if you go back to the world of just doing HTML and CSS, now you're there's less reasons to maybe have to grab for JavaScript at that point. That's a good point. The that's a, that's an excellent point. Uh, the, my counterpoint would be you have to know about these things, and CSS is already. I don't know anybody that knows every single aspect of CSS because it's just so big. Yeah. And there's browser nuances and all these things. Estelle Weil, I might, she's usually oh, yeah. pretty, she knows a ton. A and like, I do agree, like you almost need to know about all these in order to say, yeah, I can just do this with CSS. And I think a lot of times we don't know them. And that's why I even brought up these, you know, valid, invalid matches, in range, out of range. There's things that I'm like, well, would I use that? I'm not sure. But just knowing about them and knowing that they're there could be really powerful too. Yeah, and how much of that is just engineers not taking the time to learn CSS anymore? I mean, you spend so much time learning React and ES6, but I haven't put in the effort to learn CSS like I have the new, you know, JavaScript framework or the yep. new JavaScript stuff coming to me. So, I think a lot of that can be alleviated just by taking the time to actually learn the new stuff and how to apply it. Yeah, I yeah. don't disagree. Maybe that comes down to like a community problem of like like React has like an entire like team of people like working on it in the documentation and getting like community buy-in. Whereas like CSS, like there's so many different places you can go for resources, whether it's like CSS tricks or like MDN or whatever. But uh, there's not like a centralized like this is the API in a very like developer friendly 
way to digest. Yeah, almost having use cases too for it as well. Like there's there's lots of resources out there, but not one clear source. Yeah, you can find a solution for your problem when you know what to search for, but there's nothing you can go as like a step-by-step, these are the real-world practical problems you're going to run into that gets abstracted by any framework you would use. I, I'm excited about the uh, the supports query. So now rather than guessing if a browser supports something, like does the browser support grid, you can say at supports grid and then write a grid, and then you say if it doesn't support grid, do this, which is much better than the alternative, which is like if it doesn't support it, It'll do whatever it thinks is best, and it's your job as an engineer to figure out what rules it's going to apply in every browser, and it was a hassle. No, I think I think that's huge. Now you have a fallback experience that you can control a lot easier. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. I think because before you just have to like do this like weird, you know that the browser is going to ignore CSS declarations that it doesn't understand, but it's so much more confusing to look at that versus like all of your um, supports logic is encapsulated separately. That's really cool. One thing I did see, which honestly is not going to affect me in any way, there's now proper like email styling. They're actually adding more for emails and getting trying to get more from the spec to the email clients to be supporting this more. I haven't worked in doing email (sighs) templates in forever, but I always hated it so much. Like you're basically going back to tables just to be able to support some of these old clients. And a lot of the CSS was not supported. You can do that on a website, but no, we cannot do that on the uh, email client. So I thought that was cool just to even see this old, old technology starting to get some life breathed into it. Nice. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that I'm excited about is uh, the revert value that you can apply to a CSS property. And you can use that um, to basically uh, scope a CSS selector or a rule set. Um, we can choose on cheers. that first. So. <laughs> Cheers. So um, you could basically scope um, a rule set uh, to basically remove all of the inherited and cascaded values uh, for that rule set. So you could use the all property with revert and that would just clear out everything that would have been applied to it previously. And then you can just start from scratch from there. Awesome. That is actually pretty powerful. I like that. So we've talked about some of the future stuff in CSS. How has it changed since you started writing UI code? Go back to your days, which honestly, I mentioned tables for email. I started out writing HTML when tables were a thing, divs were not. So it has changed drastically, but I'm interested to hear all of you. Yeah, when I started, I don't think we even had CSS. It was IE3 and Netscape 3. So yeah, we didn't even have CSS when I was started writing web apps. <laughs> When I first started, CSS existed, but I was learning off some really outdated stuff. So I started out with like the font tag and <laughs> everything like that. But one of the, things, the biggest things that changed is that not every element has a clear fix on it anymore. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. I forgot <laughs> all about that. It's like that was just like if something's not working, just throw a clear fix. You're good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't use floats as much anymore. We don't need to. Thank goodness. Well, and that took a while because of like CSS grid being supported more in browsers. Once that was happening, that made a huge difference. And if it is being used, it's being used the way that it was originally intended right. instead of for layouts. Yeah, and we were just <laughs> hacking layouts with, yeah. with float, which is interesting in itself. What, you know, one thing I always struggled with is the vertical alignment. That was yeah. so difficult. I don't think I ever got it right. It was always like so hacky and it was like in some cases it didn't quite work. You were trying to do it. It just was never an easy thing to do. I finally figured out a way to do it like reliably all the way down to uh, IE7 at one point. So I made a small grid framework for myself. And the way that you had to do it was uh, 
for the grid row, you would set the font size to zero. All of the children would be uh, an inline block, and you would do the font size zero to get rid of the space in between each of them. And then you had a pseudo element that you could use to uh, take up like this the full element height. And then your so you could say like you want your row to be two hundred pixels, and then each of your children to be their natural height of say like one hundred pixel. Yeah. And you could just do vertical align middle, and it would take care of it. That's pretty impressive. A lot of work. But yeah. I like that you have a solution. You yeah. know, it's like, it shouldn't be that much work. You should have literally had a property. <laughs> yeah. It's like, vertically aligned? Yes, true. Yeah. Do that. <laughs> and Flexbox came in and solved that. Exactly. So. Yeah. I think one thing I've seen that has not changed is CSS hacks. There's like, you you always need a hack. Like, yep. I mean, just Tyler I've, just explained one. Exactly. I, I've never met a single engineer who's not like had to hack CSS for some reason because some browser didn't support this one feature usually safari and their weird their weird rules that they just apply to themselves yeah uh that has not changed still it doesn't matter how far css gets there's probably always gonna be hacks you have to do in some ways i kind of like that here's why is like i feel like it was always an interesting thing to learn you know and you just felt like like oh i know how to fix that and but it, it didn't make a lot of logical sense you just it was like this tribal knowledge that you had but it was always i know how to fix that i've got this i've dealt with this enough times but in some ways, that's kind of annoying in the same respect. But I think it was interesting to figure out how to solve it. And those hacks were interesting once you figured it out. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've ever figured out the hacks enough to actually remember them. So I've solved the same hack multiple hundreds ways. of times yeah. over my career. I'm like, oh, I fixed this once, but I have no clue how. So start from scratch. I think that's where <laughs> when CSS preprocessors were really helpful because yes. then you could at least write a helper function or write a mix-in that could solve that for you. And that, to me, was amazing. So I would have basically a repo of mix-ins that I would just call on when I needed them, and that was that was perfect. Yeah, auto-prefixer was a huge game-changer when that came around yeah. as well. Yeah. One Going back to hacks, though, one of the ones that I found out way too late was uh, you could in your css value for a property you could do like backslash nine and that would apply to ie nine or backslash eight and that would apply to ie eight so you could do these like really one-off things that all the other browsers would ignore so when you had just like that one minor quirk you could solve it with just that instead of having to go with something too crazy the only thing with that i do like that that was available (laughs) but the only thing that you run into as that scales on a large project is when people start using those as a solution it becomes very very difficult because it's like oh for this browser do this for this browser do that and it becomes really cumbersome to read all that as an as you're coming in and looking at someone else's work yeah i have definitely seen messes of that so it's a solution but i always say comment your code that includes css like comment your css like if there's a region you put this like one rem a margin on this thing because it like fixes some solution Put that in the comments so the next person coming through doesn't like, why are they doing this? I'm just going to take it out. Mm -hmm. But it broke on some browser that you solved. That is something I I don't see enough at scale is like people commenting on your CSS. It's it's not that hard. You can do it just like anything else. (laughs) It's really funny, though. And I think back to like us talking about like originally starting with CSS. I think early days of CSS, I remember working on teams where we would write all in one line, like you'd write a a class or L, all in one line to keep it very minimized. And I mean, there's tools yeah. to do that for you now. And so like comments, you were like, oh, that's added bloat and people would avoid that. But that is not a concern now. We have tools that will minimize and rip out comments and keep your CSS really clean on the production side code. So, but I do remember trying to avoid that just for 
some weird performance issue, which probably wasn't even that big of a gain. I think it'd be pretty minor at that point. I, I'm pretty sure it would <laughs> but be. when you're dealing with like like 56K modems, that could have been a big deal. But we just don't have to think about that anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we definitely don't have to worry about it. And also there's tooling that can just help save, oh, your, yeah. save your bloat on that side. Totally. Or we kind of talked about some of these hacks as they scale or, you know, writing comments into scalable code. But I honestly don't know if I've ever worked at a company that does a good job of writing scalable CSS. JavaScript usually has done fairly well. What most companies are thinking about more, even to Ryan's comment, is like we put more of a priority on JavaScript. But like, Sometimes CSS, you walk into a company and you're like, what's going on? How do we write better CSS for large applications? Yeah, I think that one, it's it's really hard to retrofit a good CSS solution. It's much easier to start from the beginning with some sort of like style guide or design system or pattern library or whatever you want to call it. But I think once you, if you can start off from that like base square and then you can actually keep up with it, but it's about getting like buy-in from everybody working on the project to to maintain that. I think. Yeah, and even get, getting the buy-in is helpful long-term. But if you come into a mess of code, even if it's a mess, is have a plan to go back because if you just start trying to retrofit something that never, not everyone's agreed on, that that doesn't work either. Yeah, absolutely. I think that'd be an interesting thing if you're interviewing at a company to ask the person that's interviewing you to see their CSS or just ask, how's your CSS here? <laughs> and just look at their face and watch with it. <laughs> Do you, so you know what you're getting into a little bit more? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, you see talks where people talk about like, oh, we've implemented this style guide or design spec or whatever. But in reality, it's like maybe one team out of the entire company and it's never good. What what I've seen increasingly is, and we talked about it briefly on the show, is the rise of maybe the UX engineer who is a master of like CSS and accessibility and HTML specs versus more of a JavaScript engineer who builds UI and expert at frameworks, things like that. I'm increasingly thinking like there's no way to be an expert at both. It's just, they're just two large spheres to be good. And increasingly it's like, we're good at JavaScript. Great. And then we hack our way through CSS because we have to, and like CSS will just work. And generally, unless you're just doing a really, really, really bad it's not going to be a major performance hit. You do get scalability issues when you're trying to extend it. But in general, it's like you could write a lot of bad selectors and things like that, but it'll still work. Cheers. 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 I think for me, thinking about one of the biggest problems that um, you face in CSS is the varying uh, like font sizes and line heights. And I feel like those are some of the properties that people battle with the most and i think those are because they're inherited it's harder to know exactly where all of those spaces are coming from uh, if you're not super familiar with uh, like css and the typography side and i feel like that's where a lot of the really complex uh, solutions come from where you're always constantly overwriting what's getting passed down yeah i think even from that point too it's also getting alignment from design that's a big thing too is if you can keep that consistency and then you're you can set it once and we're like, we've all agreed on this. That's what we're going to use. And we're not going to have to keep like overriding this through every component or every little feature that we're writing. It's it's set globally and, and kind of left. And then design's usually happy because it's consistent. Yeah. One of the things you can use um, as more of a concept is like vertical rhythm or the concept of like a baseline grid. And if you can get that sort of alignment from design, then all of the um, actual like components and stuff on the page are going to look a lot more visually appealing where you don't have to do all those minor little like one-off tweaks too. Yeah, that's helpful. I also find, I don't know, Tyler, I think you and I've talked about this in the past. 
there's a lot of CSS approaches or they're not frameworks, but they're more like patterns that kind of help scale and write your CSS. One that I've honestly been a fan of and used quite a few times uh, in larger applications is Smacks. It to me has been a great one for writing more modular code and really forcing you to think about how CSS is run and like what are you overriding and just really structuring your CSS. And I think if you can get people taking that type of approach like on the team and all following that standard, it can really help keep your CSS really light and easier to manage. It ends up being probably more files because just the file structure is there. But there again, build processes can deal with that. You don't really have to worry as much on the engineering aspect. Yeah, um, I haven't used Smacks personally, but I think um, I, I have used a lot of uh, BEM, BEM, um, and they both kind of have their pros and cons. I think with Smacks, that one you have like all of your theme inside of a separate file um, or a separate set of files. And that to me was always like the weird trade-off because you'd have to have two rule sets basically to for the same element to get what you need done kind of done. Yeah, I always treated the theme as like a almost like an override where it was like the last thing that was called so it was like hopefully the modular or thing you know ahead of that was the style that you should be using and then yeah. like a theme was kind of like all right i'm overriding it a bit so i tried to typically avoid the theme if i was doing that nice I, i'm glad to see the rise of component-based css where the component is tied to the css that just t- talks to that component vice versa and like that's much cleaner it's funny it took css so long to catch up whereas javascript we've learned that modules are the way to go like everything's isolated in their own little bucket versus css which is like i can touch something it can affect everything else but the fact like you can it's kind of the equivalent of back in the day remember we used to put everything on the window object because you're like I need to pass this from here. What's the easiest way to do it? Put on the Throw window. Throw in the window. It's good. Yeah, just take There's it. There's no issues there. And then eventually we learn that's probably a bad idea. I'm like, let's componentize things. Let's not use globals. But CSS still like has that concept of it's essentially it's a global unless you're really, 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 really specific. And so like moving to component CSS and uh, things like that, I think are positive for like we're moving in the same direction finally. Yeah. I mean, I think with CSS, you do still have like the concept of like globals. With J- JavaScript, you still have like the window. Um, but I think it has a lot to do with like how you're kind of like writing and organizing your CSS. I agree that it's a huge benefit to be able to co-locate like your JavaScript, your CSS and your HTML with like JSX or like JS- CSS and JS type stuff. Um, but I feel like that could be like a band-aid to the overall solution because it's like going back to like the CSS Zen Garden days, like where you can just have this one document that you can use CSS to style the entire thing. Um where if you were trying to imagine a modern architecture of CSS Zen Garden, it'd be a lot more complicated to try and achieve the same effects. Does CSS Zen Garden still exist? It does. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I'd be interested, Jem, you kind of mentioned progressive enhancement. How do you deal with that in CSS? So you got, I think, two things. One, like Jem mentioned, with at supports is a way to do it. And then two, um, going with, uh, if you're working with like much older um, browsers you can uh, have like CSS declarations that the older browsers understand and then CSS the newer browsers understand so that the older browsers really ignore those newer declarations too as one way. I think in, in those cases it's better to use uh, JavaScript to isolate your browser dependency so you have your, your IE9 and yeah. all those CSS in a completely separate file lest you like blow it up your CSS 
which is really, really, really easy to do. Absolutely. And because you can still use the conditional tags for IE, um, I think down to what IE 10, there's like those conditional comments that you can throw in and you could load. Oh, I think you can go even lower, I thought. Oh, you can no. go even lower, but I oh. think I think they stopped at either IE 10 or IE 11. I can't remember which one. I know for a fact IE 9 I see works. what you're saying. It's at the upper bound, but you could, yeah, you could go down to like, that was around forever, like IE5. Like you can do that. Everybody's HTML document started with the same like five comments yep. declaring their HTML tag with their IE classes on them. A, bi- a big thing with CSS has been building responsive websites. And I think to me, I remember first starting out building a mobile site. It was treated as a separate site. Like you would write different HTML, you'd write, it would be the .m uh, domain or it would be, there was a couple different options, but basically redirects to another site. I mean, that's an area that CSS was super powerful when we first introduced responsive websites. Yeah, I, I think for me, like responsive web design and the concepts that Ethan Marcote like put into play uh, really changed the way that I thought about writing CSS to where I basically have like two paradigms of uh, how I look at any CSS now where I have layout which would be setting up um, like my columns my grids like whatever i'm going to do and then any modules that i'm writing and for the modules i'm just always anticipating them to be 100 width like mobile first and then you can throw them in on desktop into any of the other containers um, but those are kind of like the two paradigms that i have like am i writing a layout right now or am i writing a, a module and thinking about those two things kind of separately that's typically how i've approached it and i think it was the response of mobile first aspect that made me to start to think like that i love the modular approach too is that you're not trying to keep the the sizing inside that module it's the container or layout that really decides on how big or small mm-hmm. it is and i think to me that's super powerful and keeps your components very isolated and and allows you to be more modular with your code absolutely yeah that definitely changed my perspective i'm sure if i look back on really old css it was like you know, very fixed widths and heights and, and that's just the way it was. Yeah, rel- relative styling is, it's like so much easier to reason about when you're like, oh, if the screen's this side, it's going to be this side because it's a percentage of that rather than fixed widths where, especially the, the increase of browsers everywhere, browsers in your car, people, there's people here who have the ultra widescreen monitors and you just don't know what screen size someone's going to be on. So yeah. it's better to build a relative size rather than like, oh, we looked up the top, three screen sizes and so we're going to build against these which a lot of people still do and that's just the wrong approach to take yeah i struggle with that yeah it's like why not just make it very responsive and then you don't have to worry about every little device that why shouldn't your user even if it is two users that are using your site why shouldn't they have a good experience why are you just optimizing for the higher percentage yeah when i'm working on something i always go down to 320 pixels because that's where i think iphone iphone 5 yeah uh yeah. ended yeah. up at but I think I'm probably missing out on those uh, Apple Watch users out there. That can... <laughs> how, can you browse the I internet? No I was like, I'm like, I don't know how much of the browsing experience on the Apple Watch is. <laughs> and, and that would be your 20 pixels, maybe. Yeah. yeah, that would be a little difficult. But hey, maybe now, Tyler, you should be starting to go all the way down to the 20 pixel mark. If you're going to be fully responsive, it has to work on a watch. <laughs> <laughs> What's one piece of advice that you would give other engineers to improve their CSS? Stop disabling Zoom on mobile sites. Ooh, Man, that's yeah. so annoying. It's that is super like, annoying. It, you're just you're imposing your that I view at this size or my phone is this size. It's just like a simple thing, just to not do it. But sites still do it. I can't. Yeah, you can't zoom in, or your site's badly broken, but it's I can't zoom. It's it's just 
annoying. I think we should stop doing that. I think for the most part, that's probably like an accident. I know for me, when I first started getting into responsive web design, I copied the meta tag that had it that in it by default. And then on every new project, I would just always copy that. Yeah, that boilerplate. I had that boilerplate. Um, so it wasn't until I saw an article. So maybe this is a really good like PSA, remove that from your meta tag. <laughs> yeah, go check your boilerplate <laughs> and then remove that. It's my only advice is a rant. I, I mean, to be honest, just to play on that is I don't think it's even to CSS. I think a lot of times we're overriding defaults that we shouldn't be. Even things like the zoom, copy and paste sometimes. And that's not so much a CSS thing, obviously, but people avoid allowing you to copy and paste like a credit card number and i'm like man i'm trying to give you money why are you like doing that so i think in the essence of that is like don't remove defaults or like think about why you're removing it Mm -hmm. and also what the potential downside of removing that is too Uh, another thing and this is actually coming out is the uh snap to scroll is is coming out in css or is out one or the other Does, there's I some browser support for it but not full i think yeah, yeah. i'm on the fence about that one because i generally hate when they override my default scroll behavior like let me scroll if i want to do your weird experience i'll click the arrow and let javascript control that but i hate when people override scrolling behavior because it's just it's just a bad experience for me i don't think we should allow people to override that it, it's in there though so i know i think if you think about it like because I, I wouldn't use it for like a vertical scrolling type scenario but if you think about like a carousel where you might have some sort of controls to horizontally scroll it you're going to always want like that hero image with like the text on it to like snap in those positions so it's like a know your use case type of a deal uh, but definitely like i think it's a bad pattern for actually fully scrolling the page for advice that I'd, I'd like to give, um, I think knowing which properties are inherited versus which ones aren't inherited will save you like a lot of headaches, like font size and line height being ones that inherit, borders being ones that don't. And um, some of them aren't always super clear because there's so many different uh, properties that you can use. Um, and then to follow up on that, uh, your line height and your font size don't inherit to your form controls. So set those to inherit manually and you'll save yourself a lot of headaches. One thing I wish developers would know was the CSS properties that cause a repaint or a reflow, if you will. Um, so just changing the height on element, changing the width will cause the entire page to redraw. And it's important to know what those things are. Just like um, uh, get computer style in JavaScript is an expensive operation because it has to read all these things. And it, like developers have to know these things by the back of their hand at this point. So you're not causing like constant repaints. Yeah. To piggyback on that, there's also ways that you can trigger uh, hardware acceleration with your CSS by um, mostly with like 3d animation. So if you're doing it on like smaller elements and smaller, like content um, it's not that expensive, but if you're doing it on a very like large page, that could be very expensive on the, the browser. So I got one for you, Tyler, CSS expert. Like at what point should someone consider a different animation style because we've talked in this episode about like there's svg animations there's css animations there's webgl like at what point do you know which which one you should be using um that's a really good question and i'm not sure if i have like a great answer for that um but uh if you're doing stuff with like actual like dom oriented content i think like using css makes a lot of sense but once you start getting into uh, animating like on canvas then WebGL is going to be where you're going to be doing a, a lot of work for that. Um, and then you can also do like request animation frame in JavaScript. So I think for what you can't do in CSS, that's a really great solution. Um, or to, I, I was working on something recently where um, I was using like request animation frame and I throttled it to where I could basically match the frame rate that I had in CSS so I could 
I know CSS is optimized for a lot of um, like repainting and stuff like that, whereas JavaScript's like a little bit less optimized to like change like pixels. And you can't do like a, an in-between pixel animation. So that's what I ended up uh, doing this for was because I was trying to increment like one pixel at a time for each frame and had this like very subtle but stuttered motion to it. So I was like, let's just do this every 100 milliseconds. We can definitely handle that with request animation frame like easily. And then I can make my CSS animation like transition duration also 100 milliseconds and I can get those like in between pixel uh, limits. So there's always trade-offs and I think it's like trying to better understand when the right time to use it is i don't think you can really it is a tough question to answer is because yeah what is the best case what are you trying to achieve it, it probably varies on what you're trying to do yeah we didn't i didn't even mention the javascript animations is also another there's a lot of ways to animate there is a yeah. lot i typically like try to go with css first i think that's always just been my default um, and then lean on something like JavaScript if I need to. But found that most of the times, this, if I can do it with CSS, it's probably more performant to do it with CSS. Um, but I could be even wrong there too. I like that you brought up the 3D as well. Yeah. At the end of each episode, we like to share pics of things that we found interesting or like to share with everyone. Uh, let's go around the table and share today's picks. Ryan, you want to start it off? Uh, sure. So my first pick is a pair of running shoes. I don't, I don't talk about running enough on this show. Really? Um, <laughs> but I, I just tried these out there. I, a brand called Hookah One One or One One. Um, and there's these really thick soles on them. And I've never, ever wanted to try them before. Um, but just for some reason, I decided to give it a shot. They were on sale. So I tried um, a shoe called the Hookah Speed Goats. And they're for trail running shoes. And my God, my first run in them was just felt like I was running on clouds. It was amazing. After a good like 12 mile run, I didn't feel like I had run 12 miles. So uh, those are my first pick. And the second pick is the Milwaukee Bucks basketball team. I'm a huge uh, fan of them. I've been a fan since the early 80s. And they've actually showing some promise for once in the NBA playoffs. So uh, I got to give them a shout out. Uh, hopefully they can get past the Celtics out of the second round and give me a reason to go back to Wisconsin and see a game. Jim, what do you have? Uh, I've got two picks, and surprising, there's no Netflix picks for once in a while. My first pick is a, an article. Well, it's kind of a, a long series, uh, but it's about the A star algorithm for pathfinding, which is really fascinating. It's kind of it's the go to in game if you ever used a game for like AI pathfinding. Uh, it's probably using A star. But it explains like what A star is, why it's better than Dijkstra, like all these things uh, that make A star really powerful. And then like later, it goes into much more detail about how to write one, things like that. It's really, it's really cool. Even if you just read the first page, like you'll know a lot about pathfinding algorithms at that point. Uh, my second one is uh, related. It's about writing a game loop. And I think on the outset, I was like, oh, I'll just use request animation frame because I know it's gonna if I use that, it's gonna run at sixty frames a second. And this blog post goes into yeah, that'll work until this, until this. And so you have to like match motion and what if someone cancels and things like that. And like they go into the complexity of writing a real game loop in request animation frame. By the end, it's so complex. You're like, wow, this is hard. And this is just to make animation smooth. Uh, but it's really fascinating. So my first pick is for fantasysurvivorgame.com. If you like watching Survivor, <laughs> um, this gives a whole extra layer of complexity to the game. Where and by complexity, I don't, I don't know. That's not the word. That's not the right word. Um, but it's like an extra layer. There's like a social aspect to it because you're constantly talking about who's getting voted off, and you're trying to apply points, and you're rooting for people that you normally wouldn't root for um, because they got end up getting drafted onto your tribe. Uh, so 
that's fun. I like that. <laughs> if you want to join <laughs> for the next season, let me know and I'll add you to our, our group. <laughs> My next pick is for uh, Lefroy Triplewood. I've tried quite a few uh, variations of Lefroy, and that's probably one of my favorites. I don't know enough about scotch to tell you why, but it tastes... It just tastes good? Good, yeah. <laughs> that's good enough. <laughs> um, and my next three are all kind of related. They're just different graphic novels that um, I've enjoyed and have like stuck in my mind over the past like few years. Um, and it's also a plug for the writers because each of the writers is like really good at their craft, um, even outside of uh, comics. So the first one's Marvel 1602 by Neil Gaiman, who I like a lot of his stuff. Um, and then this is just one of his graphic novels besides Sandman that's also really good that I recommend. Um, the next one's Batman Hush by Jeff Loeb. Uh, I think that's one of the best like Batman uh, story arcs. Um, just got like all of the different villains in it and like one cohesive story, which is really cool. Um, and then finally, The Wake by Scott Snyder. And uh, that one's just, uh, don't want to give too much away, but Scott Snyder is really good. So recommend that. All right. I actually only have uh, one pick, but it's a book I actually just read yesterday. It's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. So it's a leadership book. And it's kind of like telling the story of a Silicon Valley company that's not doing so well and how they change the CEO and the CEO comes and makes a bunch of changes with the executive team and is really talking about how important team functions are to actually the core root of a business being successful is that you can have all the money in the world, you can have the best product, but if the team isn't functioning, that's not going to work so great. So it was, it was a pretty quick read and I found some pretty interesting stories in it and just like made me rethink like how even teams could function better. Um, so I highly recommend checking that one out. Before we end the episode, I want to thank Tyler for joining us. Thanks so much for being a guest. Where can people get in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Tyler Childs or uh, TylerChilds.com or Tyler Childs on GitHub. I'm really public, so. <laughs> a full access to Tyler. Yeah, you can find me anywhere. Right on. Jem, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, Twitter at Jem Young. Ryan? I am Bittersweet Ryan on Twitter. I'm at Burgess D. Ryan on Twitter. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to Front End Happy Hour on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. And you can follow us on Twitter at Front HH. Any last words? I didn't know Survivor was still a TV show. Yeah, I think they're on season 38 Jeez. right now. So I think it's going to go crazy for season 40. No idea what they're <laughs> going to do for that. Something big. Something big. Maybe Tyler be will be on it. I want to I want to do it. That'd be awesome. But I think season 40 is filming in July, so that's not going to happen. They already have it all cast already. Not that I want to do it that bad. But if you have any connections, let me know. <laughs>